The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from the studios, the sun-splashed studios of WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia, and we are streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail, and also like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And just a reminder that these shows are archived as podcasts on our website, www. JewishSacredAging.com. We're going to be back with our first segment guest, Dr. Diane Rival from Jefferson University, and we'll do that right after these words from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome to our first segment today of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we are very pleased to welcome as our first segment guest, Dr. Diane Reibel, who is a director of the Mindfulness Institute and a clinical associate professor at the Jefferson Myrna Brian Center of Integrative Medicine here in Philadelphia's Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Whew. Welcome. That's a lot to get on the card. Welcome, Dr. Rival. Welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. We're going to talk about your real exciting work uh, and something that really has um, been the subject of a lot of recent shows here and guests and conversation about this uh, mindfulness explosion, explosion in mindfulness education and programs and groups. So first of all, the basic stuff. First of all, welcome. Second of all, uh, layman's definition of mindfulness. Okay. Well, thank you for the introduction, and it's a delight to be here. And what is mindfulness? Well, there's many, many definitions. I like to be very simple and say that mindfulness is actually what the word says, that the mind is full. But the mind isn't full of what it's usually full of. Um, when you think about it and people start checking in to what their mind are usually full of, it's usually thoughts of the past and what they should have done, could have done, or thoughts of the future, um, worries about the future, planning. So mindfulness is that the mind is full of what is actually happening in the present moment. So this is, again, a practice to help people's to people focus on the present the moment the now and not to worry about what shoulda coulda woulda or what mighta might be and it's very so it it, it, we're going to try to bring us to the moment and in many ways celebrate the moment that we're living in correct am i oversimplifying it correct um just a few things to add and that is that there's certain attitudes that one holds or begins to develop in addition to just focusing the attention on the present moment. 
attitudes of curiosity, attitudes of care, attitudes of um, not judging and criticizing so much. So it's a very receptive, open type of awareness and attention in the present moment, which is a little different than what we tend to do, which is fight a lot of times with what's happening in the moment. It's too oh, hot, yeah. it's too cold, it's mm. too this, it's too that. Why, why is this happening? And, yes. Yeah. So um, we want to le- ask a little bit about the impact or the use of this technique. And it, uh, am I correct? It's, it is a technique. It is a practice. It is a practice. We like to say it starts as a technique and practice, but it is really larger than that. Ultimately, it really is a way of being in a certain way of living with more openness. So the people we've talked to in the past uh, have alluded to the fact that this meditation practice um, has some extreme benefits to people as they get older, baby boomers, older adults, elders, et cetera, et cetera. Could you walk me through a little bit of your experience? Because you're involved with the, with the practice, with the Institute at Jefferson um, some of your experience about the positive impact of mindfulness meditation on boomers and elders. Yes. So um, we actually have done some research with um, older adults and found that people who take our programs, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction programs and adapted mindfulness programs, really benefit in several ways. Um, first, Oftentimes, they report reduced anxiety, reduced depression, increased quality of life, improvements in vitality. Um, And that's work that we've done. We've also done some work um, looking at biological markers of stress and shown that people who take mindfulness training actually have reduced levels of a biomarker of stress that comes out in their saliva. So physiologically as well, it's affecting people. And there's other researchers who also have found that there's improvements in cognitive function that can take place. So I mean, you mentioned this cognitive function. We were talking before we went on the air about some research um, with mindfulness meditation stress reduction vis-a-vis Alzheimer's patients, dementia patients. Can you just comment on that? Because I guess to some people it may be counterintuitive. You know, how would this practice help someone who is cognitively impaired? So the work that has been done has been done with people who have mild cognitive impairment or early stages of Alzheimer's. In fact, um, Dr. Newberg, who is our research director down at um, Myrna Brin Center, has done um, some work with a particular form of meditation with people that requires 12 minutes of practice a day and has found that it actually does improve memory and improve verbal fluency. So these practices actually work at the level of the brain to shift brain function and brain activity. And this has been shown in general, um, general population. There's a lot of studies now um, increasingly with brain function and structure and various forms of meditation. So it's not just that, you know, it helps people feel better. It actually changes 
the brain through practice. You're using certain neuronal circuitry in a certain way to focus your attention in the present moment with these attitudes that actually, you know, changes brain structure. So, so again, it's a training. I can, then what I'm what I'm understanding you saying is by this practice I can train my brain to change the way my brain operates. Am I mishearing you? No, that is that is that is what takes place. I mean, what we use our brains for affects the brain and how it functions, and this is one practice that can actually change the brain and change how it works. So, you know, to put it in, um, well, your your medical model, this really does speak to this mind-body-soul connection, doesn't it? I mean, if you if if I can have my if I can train my brain to impact how I feel, it's going to change holistically my entire approach to life, or at least the way I react to certain things. Am I, am, am I right on this? It certainly can, and we have it's found so cool. with, you know, a lot of people after 20 years of teaching at Jefferson mindfulness that that is indeed, you know, what happens. People really do transform the way they perceive themselves, the way they perceive the world, and their behaviors change. Now, I'm not saying absolutely every single person no. that does this. It's not a panacea for everyone. But in general, there are many positive effects that people see in their lives once they become increasingly mindful. Now, you teach, these are classes, correct? In general, yes. We run classes, and we run them both in Center City at Jefferson and also in the suburbs. Both Pennsylvania and New Jersey suburbs? Uh, right now, not Jersey, mostly uh, Pennsylvania. See, people <laughs> people don't like us. <laughs> That's prejudice against New Jersey. How long are the classes? So the standard mindfulness-based stress reduction class that we run is an eight-week course. Okay. Um, and it's two and a half hours a week. So it's an intensive it course is. in mindfulness training. And it is designed for people to be able to transform and change. Some. So if somebody wanted more information, how do they contact the Institute, you? How do they get the information? Where do they go? Website, phone call, or they don't just channel it, all right? <laughs> <laughs> which would be pretty cool, actually. <laughs> so certainly they can check our website, which is www.jefferson.edu slash mindfulness. And they can click on public programs and find the different programs that we offer. Um, they can also call us at 215-955-1376 and find out about our ongoing programs. And we have these eight-week programs open to the public. We also have a six-week program um, specifically for seniors. Meaning, and, and talk to me about that. A six-week, same two and a half hours, same at it's, Jeff? Uh, okay, it's an hour and a half program for six weeks. And there's some adaptations we make. Um, so, for example, in our eight-week class, we do floor yoga. And in our six-week class, we do some chair yoga. Okay. So, um, you know... The, the essence, the core practices are the same, but it's adapted a little bit. 
um, for older adults. So I have to ask this question because in just case somebody listens to this, what what does it cost? What does this the the eight week course cost? The eight week cost um, five hundred and twenty five dollars, and the six week course is two hundred and ninety five dollars. And I will put this out, and that is that we do offer financial uh, assistance for people who really feel like they are really committed to wanting to take the program but would need some financial support. Is uh, the use of meditation practice, mindfulness meditation practice, you alluded to this when we were talking before, is this becoming more... Uh, popular may be the wrong word amongst primary care physicians as an alternative to prescribing a pill for your stress or a pill for your pain. Is this becoming more and more part of the, 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 um, the therapeutic practice of primary care physicians? Uh, yes, it is, and I really um, am assuming that it's going to become more and more and more because of the suggestions to decrease the amount of uh, opioids being used. So there needs to be alternatives. And, in fact, there are initiate initiatives in different areas to train physicians mm-hmm. um, and primary care physicians on alternatives to giving the pain meds. And one of those alternatives happens to be mindfulness. Cool. We're speaking with Dr. Diane Reibel, Director of Mindfulness, the Mindfulness Institute at the uh, uh, Myrna Bryan Center for Integrative Medicine here at the Jefferson Medical College here in Philadelphia. And we'll be right back with Dr. Reibel to explore some other things. And if we have time, I think she's going to try to guide us through a sample meditation uh, pullover if you're driving. Um, we'll be right back right after these words from Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. Today, you are speaking with Dr. Diane Reibel from the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Uh, Dr. Reibel directs the Mindfulness Institute and is also a clinical associate professor at the uh, Myrna Bryan Center for Integrative Medicine here at Jeff uh, in Philadelphia. And we're on WWDB here, AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And again, we're streaming live to probably what we know in the Universe at uh, www.dbam.com, all over the place. So, Dr. Rabel, we're talking a lot about the impact of mindfulness uh, meditation practice, impact on older adults, stress reduction, uh, changes in the brain chemistry. Um, you had mentioned that you are about to start a research project uh, with. Uh, residents at a CCRC, and you have some information about that and, and some reaction to what people have gone through this project before, which I'm probably not making too much sense of. So what, what is this research project about, and what have you found so far? Okay, so... Um Actually, in 2011, um, we were funded by uh, the Friends Foundation for Aging to go into Friends Continuing Care 
retirement facilities and bring mindfulness both to the residents and to the staff. And so we have continued that work um, through the years. And we have found some wonderful benefits both for staff and for the residents in the continuing care facilities. And this coming year, actually this fall, we're continuing our work and we're actually doing a research study with residents that live in both Crosslands at Kendall and Kendall at Longwood, um, where we are going to go in and run an eight-week MBSR program, mindfulness program. MBSR means? Mindfulness-based stress reduction. Okay. Thank you. Program. Um, and we're going to look at quality of life, cognitive function, um, biomarkers of stress. And then also um, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who is our research director who does brain studies, is actually going to um, look at uh, volunteers who are willing to do this, look at the effects on the brain, both before and then after taking this mindfulness training to see if there's any shifts in brain function. Um, So we're very, very excited about this work. Um, There has been a lot of increasing work with brain studies in the general population, but not so much being done with older adults. When you say older adults, what are you talking to people over 50, 60, 70? Um, The people that we have worked with is 65 and above. The range has been 65 to 100 so far in um, the continuing care facilities that we have been in. And you found what? Some of your research has found what are the impact of of this practice? So again, that we have seen in various populations the decrease in anxiety, some decrease in depression, certainly increase in vitality, improvements in ability to accept what's happening and also more self-compassion people report, less judgmental, and just heightened awareness in general. You mentioned something, a greater ability to accept what's happening. Yes. That's a very, uh, talk to me about that because I think one of the right. challenges of all of us as we get a little older is to a accept what's happening um, and it, I think it goes partly spiritually into a sense of what I call letting go right. of the ability to say you know I can't change what happened 20 years ago so stop it already let me let go of it but the ability to accept what's happening, I imagine, I've talked to a lot of people, our contemporaries, you know, they look in the mirror in the morning, you know, like, oh, my God. Get startled. You know, <laughs> how did my dad get here or how did my mom get here? And right. What does that mean? To ex- How does that work? How do you well, accept I, this? Well, I will just say that, you know, at the end of one of our MBSR courses, one of the w- women who was in her 90s basically said, you know, it's really the first time that I feel like I'm able just to accept what is. You know, I'm older. This is a part of my life. This is where I find myself, and I'm not fighting reality. Do you have more in your practice, in your classes, more women or more men, or is it pretty much evenly distributed? (laughs) 
So I'm laughing because I think you already know the answer, but I'll put it out. I'll put it out. We tend to have more men in the classes. This is in our general mindfulness space. Really? Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Listen to me. W- uh, women tend to have oh, that would more. have been a shocker. Yes, uh, <laughs> I apologize so much for mindfulness being present, <laughs> but. No, we have many more women. I would say, in general, about 70% of the people who come. However, I will tell you, compared to when I first started 20 years ago, and now more men are showing up for the mindfulness programs that we run. More men are showing up, which is a good sign. and And do we men fight it more? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And that's the wrong uh, word, but more skeptical of it. um, Well, the ones that are showing up um, are obviously open to it, or they wouldn't be showing up. Right. I don't know whether that's um, one of the reasons why they're not showing up as much. Maybe more skeptical or so of it. Wow. So, uh, all right. So, before we start running out of time for this segment. Uh, we talked a little bit about just a sample, you know, because it's really t- good to talk about this in theory. Uh, and and we have a couple of minutes. So could you take like two minutes? Um, and we're sitting in class. We're sitting in one of your sessions. Walk me through a sample of what it means to, you know, for some people who may not have ever experienced this. Do you put me in a trance? Do we look at some magical thing? It's not the twilight zone. But walk me through a a sample. How do you guide me through focusing on the moment, the being present in the moment? Right. So it's not about trance, and it's not about looking at anything else. It's about really being present in your own body in the moment, doing whatever it is that you're doing. So um, right now, simply we're sitting um, and if those out there listening happen to be sitting, now again, different if you're driving, continue to yeah, drive. <laughs> Just begin to feel where you make contact with the chair or cushion, whatever you're sitting on. Feeling the back of the legs, perhaps, sensation. Feeling where you make contact with the back of the chair or whatever you're sitting on. And then perhaps bringing your attention to your feet and noticing how they feel being on the floor or wherever they're at. So once you bring your attention into your body, you can perhaps feel that you're being held in place and then you don't have to hold so much in the body perhaps. So maybe softening a little bit around the forehead or eyes or shoulders and then just noticing how you feel right now in this moment after pausing for just a minute or two to be present with wherever you're at and notice you know how is the mind how is the body right now how's that and suppose that like you're somebody like me who will do that, but all of a sudden your mind starts to want you always a thought comes into your mind about oh my god I forgot to go to the cleaners mm-hmm. that I I'm very serious no absolutely you know. so then what we would suggest is this you notice that you're thinking that's part of being present you notice ah thinking and then you bring your attention back 
to what's happening in the moment. And the body is a wonderful gateway into the present moment. So it doesn't time travel like the mind does. So you let the thought be there, but you don't focus on that. You come back and focus more on the body. You could focus on your breath as an anchor to the present moment or the feet or whoever you're talking to. You listen to them. They become the primary focus of your attention. The mind wanders you notice it, you bring it back. back. And that is how you continually train the mind to become more and more present. So, uh, and, and before we start really running out of time, I have to ask you this other question because it, as you were going through this, it occurred to me, I've been, I have been told uh, that there is an increasing number of, sounds bizarre, apps for your phone that are meditation apps, mindfulness. Absolutely, and And some of them are wonderful. I have people using them a great deal. So anything from actually guided meditations to just bells that ring at a certain period of time that remind you to take just a deep breath, just a reminder to come into the present moment. Many, many different apps. Cool. And most of them are wonderful. So, and and if to people who are you know running around during the day and and just the normal stress and strain, whether you're in an office or you're taking care of kids at home, is part of this practice an understanding of saying, hey, set aside ten minutes a day or whatever, and just stop, just stop what you're doing, find a quiet place, turn the lights down, shut off the phones and the computer, and just just be, just be for those 10 minutes or 15 minutes. The world isn't going to change, et cetera, et cetera. Is this part of the mindfulness practice? Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Setting aside a certain amount of time. Just like anything, if you want to learn a new skill, need to sit and practice whether it be a mus- musical skill or if you want to you know build muscles in your body you don't just sit there and look at a weight you lift the weight well, so this is this is the same thing <laughs> well we thing. hire somebody to lift the weight for it <laughs> so this is the same thing it's about a practice you know and and that would be called a formal practice and in our mindfulness programs we give out you know various formal practices to practice every so that's every the role day. of the class that's the role of the class but then to be mindful for the rest of your life, the rest of the time is very important, and that's what we're moving toward, to be able to pay attention when someone's speaking, to be able to pay attention when you're driving, to be able to notice what's happening in your own body and make wise choices. That's really what this is about. Uh, in conclusion, the contact information, uh, how do we get a hold of you, contact the Institute, learn about the classes, etc. What are those contact information things again? So it's www.jefferson.edu slash mindfulness, M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-E-S-S. Or you can call 215-955-1376 to find out about our programs. Dr. Diane Reibel, uh, Director of the Mindfulness Institute, Clinical Associate Professor at the Murderbrin Center for Integrative Medicine here at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Thank you very, very much. It's been great. Um, 
and um, I hope you can come back. This is uh, teach us some more, and good luck with that research. Um, that's going to be kind of interesting to see that study in the fall, so good luck with that. Thank you, Doctor, for uh, joining us here on our first segment of Boomer Generation Radio. I wish you have a great summer. Continue good luck with all your research. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Be well. We'll be back with Dr. Don Friedman. It's a big day for Jefferson Medical College uh, here, and we're going to talk, we're going to shift a little bit. Dr. Friedman is a uh, a veteran of Boomer Generation Radio, has written a lot for the website, and um, really going to talk about some interesting programs that he's running at Jeff with medical students, and again, uh, combining some of this mindfulness stuff with, with his own practice. We'll be coming back to the second segment right after this musical bridge. It's a wonderful day for little Aretha Franklin. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address. And again, we're coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And a reminder that you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And uh, a reminder again that the shows are podcast 
for your pleasure and listening pleasure on www.jewishsacredaging.com. You'll find almost all of our past shows uh, there archived as podcast. To um, start our second segment here, and uh, we welcome Dr. Don Friedman, a veteran of Boomer Generation Radio. This is our third time. Third time. Third time back in the last four years. Uh, he's a clinical associate professor of medicine at the Kimmel Medical College. That's Thomas Jefferson University down here in Philadelphia. Um, and you know Dr. Reibel, our, our first segment. I know guest. Dr. Reibel. So this uh, is a, it's a very interesting flow today between um, the integration of medicine aspect of mindfulness uh, and the practice of mindfulness medica- um, uh, meditation and what you're involved with, um, you're, you're, you're involved with teaching medical students uh, some absolutely needed, and, and for full disclosure, Dr. Freeman does write for uh, my website, jewishsacredaging.com, on issues related to spirituality and medicine. So... You you talk to me a little bit, Don, about your background. What led you to this path? Because you're you were a clinical. Your specialty was rheumatology. Yes. At Crozier. Crozier. Just Crozier and, 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 and Chester. What what led you to this path when you formally retired from practice to this path of uh, real spiritual spirituality? Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show. It's wonderful to be here again. And also, I must mention, to put in a plug for Dr. Rival's course, I did take Dr. Rival's course um, this year and found it uh, to have a major influence wow. on how I relate to the world and to others. It's a very powerful uh, program, the eight-week course. So anyway, um, my path after um, I retired... I always kind of had an interest in um, taking care of the whole patient. I actually did a medical psychiatric fellowship before I did my training in rheumatology after my internal medicine training because I thought that you really have to understand the emotional aspects of being ill. And um, if you don't deal with that with a patient, um, particularly someone who has chronic disease, um, you're not really uh, treating the whole patient and dealing with some of the issues that can affect how well they do in the course of an illness. So it was kind of one step after that. After I retired, I became aware of G-Wish, which is the George Washington Institute of Spirituality and Health, which is part of GW uh, Medical College at the university, GW University. And actually, under the uh, guidance of Christina Pukowski, who's a family physician, she started a department of spirituality at uh, GW, and uh, with the collaboration with uh, the John Templeton Foundation, which is here actually in West Conchahokan, um, did work on establishing how to deal with the patient's spiritual um, issues and um, developed a spiritual history, which is a, a three- or four-minute way to ask patients about their spiritual systems. Uh, the belief systems. The uh, the problem with spirituality is that um, people immediately equate it with religion. I remember giving a talk to some medical students at Jefferson, and um, 
And I said, what does spirituality mean to you? And six out of the 11 said it was the same as religion, which, of course, can turn some people off. Um, but the point of this is that everyone has a spiritual aspect to their personality. It's whether they're part of a religious uh, belief system and belong to um, a religious organization or it could be how they f- relate to the rest of the to the world um, in terms of they may find meaning in nature, music, their work, their family. All of that is an opportunity to find uh, a spiritual purpose. And so G-Wish actually defines spirituality so that it makes it more accessible, is what gives meaning, purpose, and connection in your life. And that's some of the things that we try to work with with patients. And and now there's been a focus on working on these issues with medical students. So, well. you, so when you retired, you sort of like, from what I'm hearing, this was inside of you all the time, and these opportunities presented themselves, and you just followed this path. Well, I think it was sort of when I had more time for myself um, after retiring, I just had this sense that there was something else. Something was some else. Other dimension. And so I started taking workshops with G-Wish and going to the Omega Institute and uh, other places. And you've translated this, this passion, I, I think I can safely call it a passion <laughs> or a calling, into um, instead of just saying, well, this is great and look how much I've uh, benefited from this, now, teaching medical students and being involved with trying to open up medical students to this, their own souls and spiritual, uh, compa- the, 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 this note of compassion, which is, and I know you've taken classes of the Rachel Naomi Remen, um, and with Dr. Gwande. How has this impacted, or let me rephrase it, how has, how have you taken these experiences and put them into practice with medical students at Jefferson? Well, um, I've talked with uh, you about this on another show about the program at Jefferson called The Healer's Art, which right. is a Rachel Naomi Remen course where it's for first-year students. And I think actually it would be wonderful if it was for third- or fourth-year students as well, and ultimately, of course, with residents who are working in the hospital. It, it's, uh, it's a course that uh, um, sort of encourages first-year students to explore their feelings about being a doctor. And so it's a very structured course. They're five weeks, um, three hours once a week for five weeks. Um, and there are different topics each week. One of them is wholeness. The students have to talk about what they're giving up um, in their lives and even in their personalities, what's being squeezed out of them uh, in medical school, traits that they think would help them become a good doctor and are not encouraged. We talk about grief and loss. They have to share losses in their lives and how they related to them and how they dealt with them. And then we talk about mystery and awe in medicine. That's always the hardest topic because people in medicine, particularly medical students, want everything to be sort of in an ordered fashion. And and um, and so it's hard for them to grasp the fact that a lot of times in medicine things happen that we can't explain. And rather than resist that mystery, to just accept, accept that mystery. It. And mm-hmm. the awe part of that. And then finally we talk about service. So in that setting, the students share with each other and the facilitator it just encourages them to speak their feelings. But it's related to specific subjects and they get these are, you know, students who have just come to school and don't really know each other, a lot of them 
and they get to share very intimate things. So from that viewpoint, it's very, very powerful. Now, you, you, you've recently been involved with another training. Yes, um, very recent. No, no, I, first of all, I admire the fact that you're doing it, it, it because there's a lot of, I would imagine, and we, you've alluded to this, in these trainings, in these classes with Gawande and G-Wish and Remen, there's a lot of opening up of your own soul and spirit and confrontation of your own mortality and what it means. Talk to me about this training about, I think you call them reflection rounds. Reflection rounds. What, what, what are those? This was developed, uh, again, with by Jewish and the John Templeton Foundation. And it's a kind of round to relate to it better because we have rounds in the hospital. But it's a different kind of round to relate to it better because... We have rounds in the hospital, but it's a different kind of rounds. The typical rounds are the students and residents and the attendings get together and discuss patients and what needs to be done medically, procedurally. Um, but reflection rounds is actually run on a particular service, and it's run now at Jefferson by Dr. Fred Markham, who runs the clinical clerkship in family medicine. Um, this program was developed a few years ago and was in 17, piloted in 17 medical schools across the country. In some of the medical schools, it was on the medicine, internal medicine service, some on surgery, some on pediatrics, some on psychiatry. And the format is that four out of the six weeks, that the th it's for third-year students who are actually now in the hospital and dealing with patients. And it's to help them process their experiences with patients because, you know, a lot of things come up. Um, it can be particularly difficult for a medical third-year medical student when a patient dies, and it may be the first time that a patient that they've had contact with dies. And they really need a chance to process this. And this is not commonly available to them because everything is data collection and, and again, the procedures and the medical things that have to be done. So this is, you know, and feels like social work. Uh, the social work trainees have people that mentor them to help them deal with these issues. So in reflection rounds, uh, it's four out of six weeks that the students are on a particular service at Jefferson. It's family practice. And I'm hoping that it will extend to other um, services as well. That's one of the things I'm trying to work on. So the students come together four out of the six weeks, and it's for an hour and a half. And there's a facilitator who's a faculty person. But the other issue, or the other part of the structure, is that there's a chaplain present as well who is trained in aspects of spirituality, um, frequently has had training in spiritual direction. And so the aim of Reflection Rounds is for students, they're asked to talk about um, a medical case, a patient that they may have seen and issues that come up for them by their interactions with the patient. And the reason that it's called Reflection Rounds is that the purpose of the facilitators is to reflect back to the students what they bring up. This is, you know, a very 
difficult process for facilitators because there's this tendency to want to teach and to want to share your own knowledge and maybe the wisdom you've gathered over the years, but that's not the purpose of this. This is for students to become aware of their own feelings and their own issues. And also, um, it was brought up by this wonderful chaplain, Anne Klein, who was part of the faculty teaching this Reflection Rounds training. She said, the aim of Reflection Rounds is to help students find their inner teacher, their inner wisdom, their inner values, and their inner strength. And the way that we help students do that is to reflect back what we hear so that students can go there. I think the best um, summary, and, and you'll be happy about this, Abraham Heschel was quoted, and he said, which I think really sums up Reflection Rounds, to heal a person, you must first be a person. Right. And very so, Heschel. <laughs> what's that? It's, it's very Heschel. Yes. So, and then there was another quote. That, that was the first one that really stuck me. The other was an, uh, an African proverb quote, that the reason two antelopes walk together so that one can blow the dust out of the other per, uh, antelope's eyes. And I think... You know, this is part of the process. The facilitator helps with that. The students help each other with this. Um, and so it's very important that a safe environment is created. There's no judgment. And students really go inward. The purpose of the work is to help the student go deeper into what they're feeling. We're speaking with Dr. Don Friedman, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the Kimmel Medical College, Jefferson University here in Philadelphia, uh, about his work with uh, medical students. And um, we'll be back with Don. And I want to pursue a little bit about his understanding and some of your experience and what some of these medical students are actually telling you as a result of being having their souls opened up a little bit in ways probably they didn't expect when they applied uh, to medical school. We'll be doing that right after a message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Well, welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're on the WWDB AM860 radio and here from Greater Philadelphia, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. We're with Dr. Don Friedman, a veteran of Boomer Generation Radio. And again, thank you again, Don, for coming back on. And we're talking about... Uh, your involvement in some of these programs and training programs that you're that you've been involved with and in teaching around the area with medical students, I, you know, in listening to you talk about the the reflection rounds before the break. Now you've been you've been doing this for several years now at at, at Jeff and and taking these trainings. What's been the reaction of medical students? You know, these are scientists. Um, 
I've, we all have friends who are docs, and especially in our generation, watching them grow up, they're scientists. It's it's you know do the research. What does the evidence show? Test the hypothesis, and all of a sudden you're talking to these young men and women, I guess mostly in their 20s, perhaps sometimes a little older, about stopping, just like we talked about in the first segment, opening up their souls and minds to the non-scientific, the mystery, the spiritual. What are you finding? Well, one of the things, just as a segue to what Dr. Rival was talking about, one of the purposes of this work is to help students be more present to their patients and of course that's what mindfulness does too in terms of being present but I think you have to really look at there's an epidemic in medicine now and that epidemic is burnout a lot of people, physicians are leaving practices early there are lots of factors that are involved in that and of course that's a lot of it is you know, the electronic record takes so much time away from being with patients and there are so many rules and regulations and there's not enough time to spend with patients so these are factors but in the midst of all of this, I think one of the things that's happening, the reason that burnout is so prevalent, and by the way, in, in a couple of months, in September, there's actually an international conference on physician health. Really? And if you look at the, the program and all the workshops, a lot of it is related to burnout and finding meaning. So I think a big issue, and actually, by the way, medical students burn out too, and very early have symptoms of burnout. So... Um, I think one of the reasons that, that reflection rounds is so important, and by the way, it's really hard to get quantitative data in terms of the effect. They're working on that to develop a system to look at that, but there's a tremendous amount of qualitative data where students say, oh, gosh, I wish this were on every service, or I really felt like it was coming home, you know, or um, it was wonderful to hear what other students are going through. It's very similar to what I'm going through, you know. So there's this incredible sense of community if this safe space is created. So one of the things that I really remember very vividly that Anne Klein, this chaplain, talked about is why burnout is so prevalent. And that is uh, one of the things is the perfectionism that that we all experience in medicine. I mean, if you're in medical school, you have to have a certain amount of perfectionism or you wouldn't get there. But it sometimes can take over and rule and we're never good enough and we don't do enough and we make mistakes. Everyone, you know, that happens in medicine. So there's this aspect of reflection rounds of accepting our humanity and that we can't always be perfect. There's also an issue of role-playing that, you know, I'm the doctor, I'm the nurse, I'm the chaplain. Everyone has their role. The students have their role. And that gets people away from accepting how they're really feeling about things and, and really accepting their humanity beyond what their role is. And finally is the isolation that happens. You know, we all work with other people, but there's such an effort to protect yourself and uh, not expose your feelings and not even be aware of your feelings. So I think that's one of the things that medical students are, you know, hungering for more. But I think the big word is meaning, finding meaning in your work. It's very interesting because not only the medical students get something out of reflection rounds, but the faculty does too. Uh, the faculty is frequently quoted as saying, well, I, I rediscovered joy in medicine and taking care of people. I've rediscovered the meaning of my work. And the reason that happens is because in reflection rounds where people share stories, 
and are encouraged to understand why they're reacting the way they are and how they feel about taking care of patients and how they can actually, I'm going to use the word, transform, be transformed by taking care of patients. And, of course, hopefully it works the other way, too. In a good doctor-patient relationship, that does happen. The patient and the doctor can transform each other by dealing with the medical issue at hand. How can a patient transform a doctor? Well, I think, um, well, you know, as a rheumatologist, um, I dealt with chronic disease, people really struggling to go on under very difficult circumstances with pain and disability. I was constantly made aware of the resilience of people and the power of the human spirit to just go on and deal with things and how life still can have meaning for people who are really suffering. So... I think that's what happens in reflection rounds. People, the students hopefully get in touch with their own humanity, their own feelings, and as a result, don't have as many barriers that keep them from being present to patients so they can interact with patients. So we're seeing, you're seeing um, a greater, which may be a, a, you know, a loaded word, but an increase in the, in interest on the part of medical schools to introduce these types of conversations, classes. They're electives, well, right? They're not required. Uh, well, the, the reflection rounds were required because it was done through a grant. Okay. But all of the schools, as far as I know, just like Jefferson, even though the grant no longer is there, Dr. Markham, for example, is continuing to do this. And all the medical schools, most of them that I think got the grants are continuing not not only to do it on a particular service, but to expand it to other services. Of course, there's always, you know, the issue, the resistances, the students don't have time and so forth. But I think it's really important because it involves their mental health and and really giving them a chance to get to know themselves better so that when they are confronted with taking care of patients, they can be more present. Have you in- encountered somebody who's involved in the beginning, taken one of these classes, gone through training? Have you had any contact with somebody like three or four or five years later and they've said, wow, I actually remember what we did in my first year and how important it was? I haven't really had contact with people who have gone out into the world. I I have comments that I get. You know, the students evaluate everything, and they really appreciate the chance to just be themselves and to be listened to. You know, one of the things that I think happens in Reflection Rounds is the issue of validation. And we're very careful with the, in the issue of a validation. We are not, as facilitators, supposed to say, they're there, it'll be okay, you're okay. We sometimes leave students sort of a little up in the air so they can deal with some of the things they have to deal with. It's not comforting students. It's helping them validate them by listening to what their concerns are so they themselves can find their own solutions because that's what we want. So I don't. I don't have feedback from people. I would like to think mm-hmm. that maybe 10 years from now, something that happened in one of the classes would come into a, a practicing physician's mind. I think that it would. I will never know that, I think. But I'm very comfortable with the fact that I hope that it will. How difficult it is for these medical students to face the fact that they are vulnerable human beings? 
Well, vulnerability is really a big issue, and that's why the reason with reflection rounds we encourage them to be vulnerable. It's very important to, you know, create a safe space where they, I think the main word, the big word for me is acceptance. Their feelings are accepted. We don't offer judgments. We don't even offer advice. Um, so they understand that. And one of the main things, I think, if you're not, av- uh, not aware of your own vulnerability as a person, as a physician, going back to Abraham Heschel, you, to heal a person, you must first be a person. And that means to be aware of your vulnerability and your personhood and what makes you who you are. You cannot really take good care of a patient fully. And I'm talking about total patient care. You can be a tremendous clinician and a technician and know all the things, but to really take care of a person, you have to be vulnerable too because you'll be able to appreciate the vulnerability the patient is experiencing. So we have about a minute left in this segment. Um, Just from your perspective as having practice, your teaching, uh, in about 30 seconds, give me your projection for the future of medical training. Do you see this, do you see this emerging as a real powerful wave? Well, I think there has to be something because so many people are dissatisfied, patients and physicians. And I think the real, the big word to me, which I like and I've mentioned before on this, uh, you know, this particular show is the issue of meaning. People have to find meaning in their work. I think it's very important for patients to find meaning in an illness because I think every illness, even terrible ones, can still have lessons. And so I think by finding the human aspect of medicine again, by finding meaning for physicians to find purpose and connection again is really important. And I think that's why we have these conferences, and I hope things will continue. Well, that, that's on. your next training, finding meaning in illness, um, which is absolutely correct. Dr. Don Friedman, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the Kimmel Medical College here at Jefferson University. Thank you very much for another great conversation here. Uh, we look forward to having you back again. And to, to all of you, thanks, Don. Good luck. To all of you, have a great week. 